Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus. Brendan here with Mark, episode 273, Thursday, December the 22nd, 2022. Mark, it's almost Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you and yours. Happy holidays, as they say in the United States and some other areas where they don't, they try to be um, politically correct <laughs> with everything. And um, hopefully, you will get a present or two. What do you normally get for Christmas from your lovely family, Mark? I don't. With it, presents are sort of. Um, uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I often worry about this because we live in a consumer society, and and pretty much I get everything I want when I want it. So presents. Well, it's, when it's you're a multi-millionaire, <laughs> you, can, <laughs> you can do these sort of things, can't you? It's, it's money is no object. That's it, Whereas exactly. Money's no object for me because I've got none. <laughs> at the opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, well, yes, all I want is my good health and my family around. Mark, how schmaltzy is that? Yes. I under- they're best presents of all, Brendan. Yes, so happy holidays to everybody and for those of you listening to us on Christmas morning or day, what the hell are you doing? Get back to festivities. <laughs> Enjoy yourself. Well, uh, you will we'll be enjoying yourself with our podcast, of course. And just our contact details for any new subscribers, Mark, vetgurus at gmail.com, the place to send an email to wish us happy holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. Say hello, where in the world you're from, what field of veterinary endeavours you are involved in, or just say hi. Um, and vetgurus.com, the website to go to to look at our previous episodes, all 272 of them. And poke around there, there's a good search button there where you can search for a particular species or type of disease or condition if you're looking for some information on any specifics, Mark. And thank you to our main sponsors. We'll have a bit more of a thank to them during our Christmas special, which is coming up, well, next week, hopefully. We're we're still deciding when we're going to release it to the world, aren't we, Mark, uh, our Christmas special? So, yes. Um, so, crazy weather as we're talking off air before we started. Crazy weather here in Melbourne, Australia. Supposedly it is summer. Well, officially it is summer, isn't it, Mark? But it's pouring down and we actually have <laughs> the heat, heat, the um, ducted heating on today. That's how cold it is, Mark. We had a thunderstorm yesterday. The power went off at the clinic uh, early in the evening after the clinic had closed. Thank goodness I get a little email saying the power supply has gone down. Uh, so, yeah, crazy weather. So who knows what weather it will be here for our Christmas Day, Mark. I can, you can make a reasonable, I was going to say, you can make a reasonable prediction if past trends are anything to go by. It will be a pretty warm day, most likely. Typically it is for, for Melbourne. However, we have had one Christmas not that long ago, the girls can remember it when they were not too young, where we had a bit of a white Christmas. We had a thunderstorm and a couple of centimetres of hail, Mark, (laughs) in 
um, completely covering our, our lawn and our yard. And I think actually the house next door, uh, their back room collapsed with the weight of all the hail, Mark. So that's how severe the thunderstorm was. So crazy weather. I, I predict you will have humid weather where you are, Mark. <laughs> you won't be too far wrong. Did you know that um, early this week I wandered up to Pajinka, the tip of Cape York, the most northerly point, and for a short period of time I was the most northerly person on mainland Australia. Oh, did you have a... Did you take a selfie? Did you do a, take a photo? I forgot to take a selfie. I, I, I got a picture on a map just to prove that I was there. Well, when you head back up there again, I'm sure you have plenty of time while you're up there for a while. Take a peek, Mark, and we can always post it in, in the um, show notes as well. Uh, we don't have a review this week. We haven't had a review for a while of, of gear or equipment or a, a movie, etc. Um, perhaps we'll have one or two during our... And I'm sure we will during our Christmas special, which will Definitely be Definitely in the new year. I've got a few ideas for the new year. Shortly. Excellent. And uh, no no emails of any note that we need to reply to on air, Mark. So I think we'll jump into news. Um, and I'll take the first one, which is veterinary drugs. <laughs> I like this one. <laughs> veterinary drugs show effectiveness against bed bugs. You know, so the old ivermectin, Mark. Um, it, it cures everything, yeah. doesn't it? And the report, it was weird. I forget where it was, Vet Practice Magazine, but I forget where it was from. It was from um, a report, a collaboration between entomologists and veterinary scientists from North Carolina State University College of Veterinary Medicine, where they tested big bug mortality rates in different experiments um, and they were using ivermectin and I always get I always struggle to pronounce the flu relena um flu ranola flu ranola flu ranola flu ranola and ivermectin were used to kill fleas and ticks on household pets and dogs but they used it to test their effectiveness for getting rid of big bugs and they well, what they did, Mark, they mixed the drugs on the lab bench after the big bugs bit and fed off chickens that either had ingested or received topical treatments with their bugs. And basically both drugs showed good efficacy on the bench, killing most of the big bugs, although fluoranola performed much more effectively on bed bugs that showed resistance to common insecticides. Uh, and especially effective at killing the bed bugs that fe- fed on chickens dosed with the drugs. And I think that's because their hypothesis, Mark, something that you'd think about would be that chickens could be quickly metabolising the ivermectin from their system so it wasn't working quite as effectively as the fluoranola. So there we go. And their other comment was, the last few decades have seen a resurgence of bed bugs in homes. Bed bugs? Yes. So... I think you've probably encountered a few big bugs on your travels, mate, um, <laughs> some of the places you've been staying at. Although that's the advantage of having a your little setup there, Mark, and I think we should do that as part of your review. Review, yes. Special yeah. should be your your travelling home that you've been in on and off for the last um, 12 to 18 months. So we'll, we'll leave that for next week. So there you go, Mark. Um, ivermectin and fluorolanola is... I am um, surprised. That um, the bed bugs, first of all, that that they um, are making a return to human beds, but um, 
they're getting so happy now that they're um, returning to poultry farms. Yes. So are they getting to the poultry farms through the human beds? Like, <laughs> so, so people are sleeping with their chooks, is that what you're trying to say? I'm yeah. not saying anything. Yeah. Just yes. seems like a strange pattern to me. Yes. Um, it's another journal you subscribe to, isn't it? Parasites and Vectors. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> One of the best journals out there, Parasites and Vectors. And yeah, there is open access to that if you want to. And we'll have a link. We'll have a link to the uh, to the article there, Mark. Um, so they, and I'm just looking at the paper now. That's why I'm sort of pausing a little bit. And they have... They have some little pictures of the setup with the little um, test bench that they had there, Mark. It's quite, yeah. um, quite amusing, the little pictures they've got there. So there you go. Because they made up a bed bug rearing and artificial feeding system. <laughs> you know what it is? It's just two – it's three jars. It's a little – like a Copeland jar, a little jar with a screw top and then a membrane above that, and then two jars on top of that, one with water in there and some blood in there for the bugs to bleed up, breed on and to feed on. And, um, yeah, so it, it ain't anything too fancy. But, yes, good article. We will link to it. And there we go, Mark. That's my article. Well, my one is, well, I'm finding it a little bit um, complex. The, the article is titled... Um, asks the question, will shipping noise nudge Africa's only penguin toward extinction? And the the premise of the article is that uh, the jackass penguin of Africa, South Africa, um, is struggling. The numbers, the total number of the population has dropped dramatically over the last few decades, uh, maybe by 75%. Um, but at a particular colony, um, one of the rangers noticed during a routine inspection, that um, that there was a surprising number of sickly birds, particularly the chicks, and um, this triggered a, a rescue mission where a bunch of the chicks, given the perilous state of the population, a number of the chicks were picked up by helicopter and flown to be uh, fed copiously, um, and... Um, and that seemed, they seemed to be starving. There seemed to be no other disease process going on. Um, and, geez, it just begets the question, because that particular colony is close to a, a number of um, uh, commercial and recreational shipping uh, uh, avenues, it's, it, the question is asked, is the greater levels of shipping adding to the problem? Um, the argument is that the birds tend to hunt as an underwater flock. They communicate underwater, um, and maybe they're most effective as hunters when they're, they're able to communicate well. And the hypothesis is that um, sh the vast increase in shipping noise is interfering with their ability to uh, to communicate and hunt effectively and this is having a snowball effect because as the population drops the birds seem to be most effective hunters when they're in a large flock and so small poorly coordinated flocks of underwater penguins are the worst sorts of hunters so there are other pressures on the population um, a whole bunch of uh, effects of climate change may be interfering with 
uh, with the birds, uh, the, the overfishing of one of their main uh, sources of food, the sardines and sardine-like fishes uh, hunted by humans in large amounts. And so maybe all these factors all together are just pointing them in the wrong direction. But there is a genuine worry that at the current rate of decline, it might only be 20 or 30 years and there <coughs> yeah. is no more African penguins. Uh, I think they had another theory as well, didn't they, about, let me find it here, uh, that also the possibility that the knock-on effect of the shipping noise could mask the sound of approaching predators, Mark, such as orcas, leaving them more vulnerable to being prey as well. Yeah. Some good little um, good little um, graphs there um, and some little illustrations there of the shipping lanes and the feeding fo or foraging areas of the penguin as well, and they do certainly overlap. And a little note there of the African penguin breeding pairs, which were around 8,000 or so, fairly steady, blip up and down a little bit from 2010 to 2014, but since then steadily declining, and the breeding pairs are well below 2,000 over the last two or three years or so. And it's contrasting so that to the, sorry, the bulk carriers, the yeah, number of yeah. bulk carriers going from 250 up, up to 1,000. So, yeah. And it was, it's an excellent article in that they treat, uh, like there's a clear correlation, the number of bulk carriers rises at the same time as um, the number of breeding pairs drops from that sort of stable 8,000 mm. down to under 2,000. But um, it's pleasing the article doesn't automatically draw a causation relationship between those things. They observe the correlation and then start to look for reasons that there might be a causative relationship but um not more research is required brendan they need they, it's an interesting thing they're talking about putting speakers on some of the birds to actually record what the birds hear and see if that can give them some clues about you know whether there is communication whether the predators are getting them um it'll, it's a point for for them for further research no doubt about it and, well, two, two further comments, Mark. Um, another excellent journal there, Mark. Science of the Total Environment is the name of the journal. I hadn't heard of this journal, but, gee, it's got tabs on itself, hasn't it? Uh, <laughs> Science of the Total Environment. We're the best uh -huh. of the best. Uh, and we'll have a link to that article. And the name of the bird, Mark, the jackass or the jackass. Um, yes. So have you heard, and I didn't realise this, that apparently it's based on the, the sound that the yes. penguin makes, a bit like a, a jackass. A bit of um, a have you heard noise. it? Um, not in real life, no. One of the penguin species I'm yet to see. Ah, there you go. Put it on your bucket list, Mark. Okay, we better jump into our main topic this week, which is one that you love, Mark. One that I do you love. love it. Frog diets. What do we do about feeding our little pet frogs? Pros and cons of feeding different types of items. What should we feed? Um, we're going to talk genera generalities, maybe a couple of specific items with them. What to do and what not to do, Mark. And we're going to relate it back to some of the diseases that we certainly see in captive pet frogs fairly frequently. So let's jump off with... 
bit of an overview, Mark. Um, do you want to sort of chat about diets? I do. I do. The, the key thing, I suppose, about uh, frogs is that there there are exceptions, but largely they're um, insectivorous hunters. They uh, hunt insects um, and consume a fair variety. There's some specialists, as I mentioned before, but most of the species in captivity are um, uh, 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 happy to have a go at um most live insects, um, and so uh, that that all the problems that we see with insectivorous diets, uh, they're the things that we have to think about with these guys. Um, so the probably the the um, the most important thing um, that I start with with these guys is um, is a variety, Brendan. That it's important to um, most people are going to use cultured insects as the as the sort of stock the main part of the diet for these animals um, and the first thing to say about those cultured insects is that it's good to have a, a big variety and not just depend on one or maybe two different types of cultured insects but to have a significant variety of them Brendan. Well, I think you've summarised the whole um, main topic there, Mark, uh, in, in two minutes. Oh, no, there's a lot more to this. <laughs> there's variety. a lot more to talk about. We always talk about variety being the key um, with with these, um, well, with all, all the pets, all, all the animals um, we chat about on our podcast there, Mark, and relating relating those diets, as you, as you mentioned there, Mark, to the species involved and what environment they're in. So when we're talking about little froggies, it's thinking what, where does that species come from? What, what naturally, in what insects does it chomp on? And let's try and see if we can mimic that. And I suppose that leads to a very common, very, very common question in practice with my clients, Mark, is the old, the old chestnut mark of, you know, should I be feeding wild caught versus commercial? And we have a lot of clients who come in with their pet frogs and they're, they're terrified of offering or feeding wild caught insects to their pet froggies um, and they've been berated by the uh, pet shops typically um, not always but uh, mentioning that uh, no that you should never feed any wild caught insects to your pet froggy because you're going to cause it harm mark so do you want to talk us through this process of wild caught versus commercial the pros and cons of each well i think the key thing there brendan is that um that there are risks. There's definitely risks associated with using wild-caught prey. Um, the two big ones are that uh, that the wild-caught prey may introduce parasites into the the um, into the frog, the captive frog population. If you have a few frogs, um, and secondly, um, they may be affected by insecticides. In which case, they can do you know pass those chemicals onto the frogs before they're broken down and, and cause problems there, um, particularly those persistent insecticides, even some of the ones we were talking about before with respect to bed bugs. I have to say though, Brendan, that um, the, the risks of those problems are um, probably less, they're, they're, they're for the absolutists. So if I had a colony of of uh, critically threatened corroboree frogs, for example, um, then I would not uh, be using um, wild caught prey 
um, as additions to their diet. Um, but if I had a population of animals that I was monitoring and uh, um, that I was less concerned about um, the risks of uh, genetic problems associated with a captive breeding group um, and the infections that might arise from parasites and how I might have to treat those guys, I'd have no trouble. I don't see a big amount of problems using uh, wild-caught prey. So in my co colony, I have a colony of uh, green tree frogs and uh, magnificent tree frogs, and um, those guys have a light above their enclosure, and that light um, is attached to a, uh, has a fan immediately below it and a little funnel, and uh, moths and small mosquitoes are attracted to the light and uh, swept by the breeze of the fan into the enclosure and look I think the key thing for me about my frogs is that it provides relatively small prey that would be very difficult to provide any other way um, that the frogs expend a lot of energy pursuing so not only you know as we think about um, their well-being um, the frogs Obesity is a genuine problem in captive frogs because they <laughs> sit in one spot and uh, don't move and get uh, highly nutritious, large uh, size prey items. Um, and so those small prey items that they chase around the enclosure tend to uh, make them stronger. They have uh, more muscle activity. Um, and I, I just see the, the benefits of that sort of food outweigh the risks while I admit that they are genuine and real absolutely now you need to expand a little bit on that is that a commercial little setup there that little fan that attracts them and the light and the sucking and the pumping through yes it is it's a it's a excellent um, i haven't a, seen those before yeah it, it all i've done is take a um, um they're, they're insect traps the mosquito style insect traps for um, outdoor areas um, they um, they literally I cut the bottom off so that there's a little canister into which the fan sweeps the the um, all the insects interestingly enough they're sold as mosquito preventatives for outdoor areas but geez the vast majority of the insects that they catch are um, a little moths and uh, not insect uh, not biting insects at all uh, but yes just very minor adjustments, attach it to the enclosure, and there you go. It's a constant source of food for the frogs. Fantastic. And I agree 100% in that the vast majority of these pet frogs, the chances are very slim, very slim, of having an issue with feeding wild-caught insects. And the benefits are great um, in that we're varying that food, we're providing that environmental enrichment, and we're going to cover that as part of the frog diet and we've sort of already half covered it and environmental enrichment for food and, and giving them things to do and play around and help them exercise themselves and exercise their little froggy minds as well mark um, <laughs> letting them be a frog enjoy their life um, and the chances of you feeding something that is um, going to be toxic or, or otherwise with parasites is pretty damn slim and yes if if we're dealing with as you've hinted a an endangered or a critically endangered species 
we don't want Mark to be the one who killed off that species, um, and they're the ones that you may be a little bit more wary of offering the wild-caught um, insects just because we've got such a limited amount of the, that species left in on the planet, Mark. Um, so, yeah, I agree totally with what, what you said. So that leads on to, you know, so, so we're talking about, and there are different, and we won't, harp on the different types of commercial frog diets and foods out there and because that does vary a lot between countries as well what is accessible um so how often and how much do we feed them mark what's let's let's just take a generic adult frog let's say green tree frog how often should you be feeding the critter well, I think that this is one of the excellent questions, Brendan, because um, I think that, you know, let's say we're feeding them um, a mixture of cultured uh, captive bred insects of very high quality. We've had this discussion before where um, if you're getting the last crickets in the pet store that have been sitting there for um, a week, they're going to they're gonna be run down and not well themselves. So always yep. make sure you get excellent quality uh, prey items and and treat them with the respect that they deserve, um, making sure they're as nutritious and healthy as possible for the frogs. Um, then I reckon for, you know, an adult green tree frog, um, one that weighs maybe 60 grams or thereabouts, you're probably only feeding them um, two or three times a week. I have clients that feed them twice a day, and that is a formula for the frogs to be um, uh, to be overweight, they don't have a high metabolic rate. Um, they are um, relatively uh, inactive unless they need to hunt, um, and so well-fed frogs are going to sit in one spot and um, develop all the problems that inertia and obesity lend to any species. Sorry, you faded out there a little bit, but we got you. Yes, um, so we feed them twice a day. I mean, we, it's always no, no not twice a day. Sorry. Two to three times a week, Brendan. <laughs> so, I must have faded out. <laughs> yeah. No, that was me. No, I was, th- I was thinking of the next topic. Sorry, that was my, my bad, my bad. Yep. Um, so what about supplements, Mark? Um, do we add any supplements to a variety of food items? Yes, we do. I don't know. With um, the, with the use of a portion of captive of, of wild-caught prey items, I think those supplements are less important. Um, but certainly if we're feeding, um, you know, the the mealworm uh, tenebrio species, they're well recognised as being vitamin A deficient and uh, lipid-rich and yeah. calcium to phosphorus ratio is abysmal. Um, and so when you use those commercial uh, captive bread prey items, cultured prey items, um, I do think it's worth adding a, a dusting of, of calcium to to try and correct the calcium to phosphorus ratio. Um, I think it's worth adding less frequently a multivitamin powder. Um, within date, make sure those multivitamin powders degenerate, the, the vitamins in them uh, go uh, break down and become less functional over time, so making sure they're in date. Um, yeah, I think it is worth using those things, um, and um, but uh, but definitely not uh, absolutely every single time they're fed. Um, um, intermittently, uh, you know, once every third or fourth time they're fed 
using uh, calcium or a multivitamin supplement is a good thing to do. Yep, I agree. And again, there are various different concentrations, I suppose, or, um, of the calcium vitamin D supplements and some of the other multivitamins as well. And uh, I think we need to, well, not really say much else because otherwise we, we may give some advice that's not appropriate for the supplement somebody ends up using, Mark. Um, but I do think that leads you on to, the, to, to do some research because there are some supplements that are very heavily, they have very heavily added um, particular vitamins, whatever, and they won't need to be used very often at all. Um, and other versions, um, so paying attention to what the manufacturer recommends, the frequency of administration the manufacturer recommends is a good call, Brendan. Yep. Which leads on to our final little section of froggy diets, Mark, in captivity, and that is diet-related diseases. And you already mentioned one issue that is pretty damn common, and that's obesity in mean, yeah. these little guys. And I always remember the Jabba the Hut that we used to have <laughs> at Hillsville Sanctuary, the zoo that I used to work for, and Jabba was certainly named appropriately because Jabba was... Uh, proportionally even bigger than Jabba the Hutt out of Star Wars um, because it was an animal that was used for education and all the school classes would come through. Several viewings, several different classes per day, Mark, of, of school groups. And guess who used to put his little <laughs> tongue out all the time? Jabba. Um, so he used to get fed many times per day, Mark, not two or three times per week. So he ended up a tad overweight. Oh, Jabba. So we have obesity. What else do we have, Mark? Well, there's um, definitely uh, the same as many of our insectivorous animals. Um, and this is an in interesting point associated with nutrition, Brendan. Um, many people don't realise that... Um, that our frogs bask in sunlight, um, and particularly those uh, very young frogs that have recently metamorphosed from tadpoles, um, they have almost a requirement for some exposure to um, sunlight to help them to process their uh, vitamin D and to generate appropriate levels of calcium. But um, metabolic bone disease is a common issue to deal with with frogs, and so. Um, uh, that's directly related to the, the components of the diet and even the nutrition of the tadpoles um, can play a role in, in how flexible their bones are once they turn into frogs, Brendan. Yep, yep. What else? Um, the, the, the diseases associated with um, high circulating levels of uh, fat. So an obese animal is, particularly an obese frog, is likely um, uh, to not process that high level of circulating fat very well, and it will be deposited in unusual locations. Um, most apparently, most obviously, are those uh, corneal lipidosis uh, plaques that we Almost all of us who deal with frogs will have seen at some point. They're frustrating because, well, in my experience, there's probably not a lot that you're going to do to remove them. You might stop their progress by uh, making the di appropriate dietary changes, and you may even see a little bit of regression, um, but um, they are frustrating things to deal with. Um, but that uh, lipid deposits can occur in other locations as well, and uh, definitely we've had hepatic lipidotic frogs 
um, that have been very difficult to nurse back to health. Um, so it's no surprise to me, Brendan, that we spend so much time talking about um, uh, the appropriate amount of food to give them because you give yes. them too much, they'll get they into trouble. They are a challenge to deal with, aren't they? And for those of you who haven't seen up front what, um, in person, what the corneolipidosis looks like in a froggy, all you need to do is do a, well, do a Google search for corneolipidosis in frogs and you'll pop up with hundreds of images of that and it, it is very dramatic especially the more severe ones there and they are they are a nightmare to to try and well not really treat but to control to to provide some relief from that animal and and um yeah i think we have mentioned some of the techniques for trying to shave off those those areas of lipidosis off the cornea in a previous podcast mark um, Yes, but they're, they're certainly the, the, the um, ones that spring to mind with me related to diet-related diseases in, in froggies, Mark, the metabolic bone disease um, variations, uh, lipidoses. Um, and any other any other sort of thoughts about diet-related diseases before we get out of here? No, I think that's covered it all together. I, it's an interesting thing I was going to ask you on this topic, uh, whether any of your clients, there's a, overseas it's not unheard of to have, you know, some pelleted uh, formulated food and um, and some of the frogs can be acclimatized to those sorts of foods I know that happens probably more frequently frequently in a research setting yeah. um, but do any of your clients feed their frogs pelleted foods no, no, nobody recently Mark that yeah. I can think of in the last few months or so yeah so the other thing I was going to mention before we uh, end up is that you will see some of these frogs do get to be very, very large. And um, and as you mentioned about Jabber, um, voraciously they'll, they'll have a go at anything. And one of the things that I counsel strongly against, Brendan, um, is feeding them vertebrate prey. So I have some clients who mm. used to feed uh, pinkies or even more advanced um, uh, rodents. They were... I suppose they're convenient because they're a high volume food um, and so uh, they can be stored. But um, but I def definitely see a vast increase in the number of those nutrition related health issues when those priorities are high. Yeah, yeah, it just puts too much. And again, getting back to basics that what we spoke to at the start there, you know, relate it back to what the species eat in the natural environment and they're not. They're not gorging on <laughs> those those vertebrate species every day. Sure, they might you know come across something on a very rare occasion that they chomp on that might be something a little bit similar. But yeah, it's not a not a not a staple of their diet. Yeah, great yeah. point. Well, I think with that, Mark, a little summary of froggy diets is just about finished and. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. Well, we'll be chatting to you before then, or we'll be recording before then, but Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays to all of you who who celebrate the Christmas period, and we will talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. 
Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Thank you.